0: Okay, I just just uh, you know the gentleman You know the you know the uh, the drill about uh, about the introductions I make, and that is that the introductions are inversely proportional to what you think the speaker has to say. So, you know, it's going to be very short. Okay. Yeah, But I w- want to add, since, since uh, believe it or not, I am the so-called chairman of the Machshava department. Okay. So this had to be vetted by me to actually replace a Machshava shear. So I can guarantee you that you're going to hear something worth hearing in Machshava. Thank you.
1: First, I'd like to thank Rabbi Ebner and Rabbi Sassman and Rabbi Berman for this opportunity. Rabbi Ebner and I go back maybe 40 years ago, remembering he was at Yeshiva University and certainly he was a model to me then as he's a model to you. And I thank you all for coming and tolerating this next hour of, hopefully, machshava. As you know, the topic that we're going to discuss is Morei Nebuchim, the Rambam's classic work. However, I think it's probably most appropriate to formulate what we're going to do in the following fashion. What do the Rav Masoreen Bohim, Sherlock Holmes, and The Fool all have in common? The president of my synagogue says that he will give $1,000 to anybody's favorite charity if he could answer that question. Often we formulate our shiurim in terms of a Question that actually nobody's going to be able to answer. But if anybody wants to try over here, I'm gladly willing to give you a thousand dollars for a favorite chat If you were able to tell me what Mordechai, Sherlock Holmes, and the fool all have in common. Anybody want to try? Good. That shows that you're wise. If you are awake for the next forty minutes, you will know something about Mordechai. But if you fall asleep at that point, you won't know anything about Sherlock Holmes or about the fool. If you're up 55 minutes, then you will know Bukheen, Sherlock Holmes, but you won't know anything about the fool. But if you stay up for the entire 60 minutes, you'll be able to connect all these three areas. So I suggest you do the latter. I begin my presentation with a story. Six months ago, I was in Israel, we had celebrated an extraordinary bar mitzvah. Over the top, every T was crossed, every I was dotted. The most magnificent, extraordinary bat mitzvah that you could actually imagine. However, it was not the highlight of my trip. Rather, the highlight of my trip was a shiur given at the home of Joe Harari, most of you know him, on a siyum of Murey Nebuchim. I had been to many siyumim, had done some of them myself. Never had I been at a siyum of Murey Nebuchim, the guy further perplexed. It was Rabbi Sabato, and I was mesmerized by this group of people for the last two or three years, studying, in the original Arabic, of course, Moreh in the guide for the perplexed. Yet, at the end of the Shi'ur, I was somewhat surprised that they didn't ask the most important question that has to be asked when one engages in a siyum. What is the most important question that one has to ask when one engaged in a siyum, what's the most important question that one can ask? Yes. Don't scratch your head in my class because I'll call on you. Thank you. What have I learned? What have I learned? Good, but no. What do you mean to me? Like, like, You're seeing it from a step back. Good, but. How yeah. have, have I changed? You people all focus on the self. Think about, think about the author himself. You might wonder. What is the most important idea that this book is offering me and the world? What is, as Rabbi Tversky says, who wrote the most important work, I I think, on the Rambam in the last hundred years at least, what is the author's center of vision? Remember those words, center of vision. If, Robert Chorsky says, you're able to focus and accept and understand and know the center of vision of that author, you know the man. So what is the center of vision of Moreh Nebuchim? Does Moreh Nebuchim have a center of vision? You may raise the question. But differently, what is the most important idea or part of Moreh Nebuchim? What part captures our attention? What goes to the heart of what the book is all about and presumably perhaps this might in fact tell you what is the most important aspect of Torah itself but you might challenge me and raise the question why are we actually studying Morin Nebuchim why Morin Nebuchim why am I speaking about it well first of all because Mordechai told me that this group is a very special group and that they know everything, they've learned everything I must do something they have never learned before and when I said, yeah, I can do something that I do in Hillel, he said, these are not Hillel kids. These are Latvish kids, and Ramaz kids, and Australian kids, and African kids, and all that kind of stuff. So I said, I'll try to do something that's a little bit different. Hence, Munei Nebuchim, hence, Sherlock Holmes, and hence, The Fool. So, why Munei Nebuchim? One can argue that Munei is the most important book of Mahshara that's been written since the Hatimada Talmud, since the end of the Talmud. It's a work that reverberates. It's a work that one can spend endless amount of time studying, knowing, and yet never, never getting. It's a work that has raised a tremendous amount of issues and facts. If one were to define the Middle Age period, one can take what we've said in Rawi Harari's class last three sessions, the Maimonidean controversy, and define the entire Middle Age by those terms, Maimonidean controversy, wherein the greatest of Jewish minds, the Ramban, the Radak, Yad Rama, have all engaged in an intense debate over this work, Mureyna Mukhim. It's become the focal point of all Jewish thought, such that one cannot rightfully even write a work in Machshava without making some kind of reference to what the Rambam says in Moren de Bukhim. 800 years later, the book is still the focus of everybody who seriously thinks attention. Endless articles, endless ideas, endless thoughts, all revolve about Morin de Bukhin, and yet nobody really can capture what he's really saying, interestingly enough. The Mukubalim say he's one of ours. The so Rasha say he's one of ours. Everybody wants to claim the Rambams, Morin de Bukhin, as their source of inspiration. So Morin de Bukhin is a very important book. One has to study it, understand it a little bit, somewhat, to find out what Machshavah is really all about. So I'm going to come again and raise the question, what is the most important part of Bodei Nebuchim? Ideas are important in Jewish life. A story, my last story, maybe, we'll see. I was in graduate school at Brandeis in the early part of the 70s, I was somewhat depressed as a graduate student. Most graduates are depressed. It's so hard to learn, to know. Read this, read that. You can never catch up. Depressed. I walk into the young Israel Brookline, and there I'm speaking to two friends of mine. Jerry Levine went to Shea University. and was now in Harvard Medical School. Uh, Sheldon Challenge was... Yeshiva University and he was now at Harvard Law School. says, so you people are lucky. You really have it made because Jerry, you're going to cure the illness of people. What's more important than that? Somebody sick goes to see you and now you're there healthy. Fantastic accomplishment in life. And you, Sheldon, you're going to, with all your money you can make as a Harvard lawyer, you going to build the hospitals in which Jerry's going to work. You're going to give a tremendous amount of salaries and build Yeshiva. Fantastic. Both of you are going to be very accomplished. Me, all I'm doing is dealing with is ideas and working at our ideas and I may have all the wrong ideas ideas, very depressed. They didn't answer the question. It took me ten years to realize how important ideas are. Ideas actually are what make the world run go round. Ideas are why Jared is going to help a person who is sick. Because there's an idea about what human beings are all about. And Sheldon chance is going to build a hospital, build the because he appreciates ideas. Ideas are very important. So what is the most important idea of Mordei Nebuchim? So let's begin at the beginning you might argue the first section of Morin Rebohim deals with the issue of parashanut hamikra, biblical interpretation. So you might argue that the Rambam is going to put the most important idea that he has in the very beginning of the work. He knows he's going to write a very difficult work, work that you're going to have to struggle to get through. So therefore, you might argue, say the Rambam is going to put the most important idea in his opening chapters because you cannot understand Torah properly unless you have the opening sections of what I was But let's say you were a fundamental literalist. Anybody here a literalist? Or something bad about them? No? Good. So let's say you were a literalist. So what would you end up with? You would say, for example, means do not see the goddess mother's milk, as opposed to milk and meat eating, or benefiting, or cooking. So if you're a literalist, or oh, said to us, Cut off her hand. We don't do that. So if you're a literalist, and you didn't have a Pashut HaMikra orientation, when you interpret biblical statements, you might be way off base, as, in terms of what Torah wants. Or more tragically, you might have the wrong idea about? About? about God himself. Correct. You might create for yourselves based on a literalist understanding of Torah that God has flailing nostrils, haron af. God has a powerful right hand. And therefore, you must have Pashtun biblical interpretation to understand what Torah is really all about. So therefore, the Ram is going to say, I'm going to interpret for you in these next chapters, the first 71 chapters of Moray Nebuchadnezzar, part 1, I'm going to give you the right rules of interpretation. And therefore, the round begins with the most horrid example of a person having the wrong idea about God, namely, San and And that's your first chapter. Now, that might, in fact, be the most important verse in the Torah itself, because what is that really telling me? Well, if I were approaching this from a purely biblical point of view, I would tell you that this is telling me that every human being is created in the image of God... And I would not assume that you're going to think that I mean a physical image of God. You're much more sophisticated than that. You're from Flappish Ramaz and all those other places. So you know that I mean something other than physical image of God. What does it really mean that I value you you infinitely so? Because God is infinite. And as the Mishnah Sanhedrin, Perik Vav, Perik Dav, Mishnah Vav tells us that you are... Irreplaceable as a human being. Nobody is like you. <laughs> In the same way that your faces, your physical demeanor is, is different, so too the essence of each person differs. That's what Simon okay means. Infinitely precious, unique, irreplaceable, and therefore I must treat you as an infinite person because God said you're infinitely valuable precious to Him. God loves you infinitely so, and therefore I must do so as well. I will not dare demean that which God says is of absolute importance. I will not treat you in any horrific fashion. I will do what's so right and appropriate and proper, because God said, you are infinitely precious, because you're created in God's image. But, with all of that, approaching that kind of and understanding the idea behind Sainal I might have been... Misled by that term. So look at the first opening chapter, Munayn Evochim, settling the opinion that the Hebrew Tselem, shape and figure of a thing, understood and this led men to believe in the corporeality, the physicality of the divine being of God Himself, that the words, that says that God had a form of a human being. That is, that He had figure and shape, but that cons- cons- consequently He was corporeal, physical. They adhered to this view and thought that if they were to relinquish it, they would. reject the truth of the Bible and that if they did not conceive God as having a body as a face and limbs as ours they would have to deny even the existence of God so people might have been misled by that opening Perek Aleph Pesu Kavav verse think that God has a physical form and you would end up as a pagan you would end up as somebody who believes God is physical and corporeal That's not what Selim means. Rather, Selim gives you that which makes you, you. So what is it that makes you, you, the Ramam would say? Selim means your ability to, hopefully you're still with me, think, exactly, thank you, very good. Your ability to think. And that's what Selim means, because you share in some measure, really you don't, but you share in some measure with God that Ability to cognize, to think, and if you look at the next page, says this here, or at the bottom of that first page. Uh, sorry, the term "salamah" signifies the specific form, namely that which constitutes the essence of a thing. Your essence is not what you eat or your physical form. Your essence is whereby the thing is what it is. You are a thinking being, therefore. God's gift to you is your ability to think. Man's glory is his intelligence. The reality of the thing in so far is that particular thing. And man, the form is that which gives him his human perception. Intellectual cognition, the term is employed in sense and he gives you all the examples for that. And then he says to you on the next page, that that's what he shares with God himself. Top of the next page. That's like man, 126, 25, so the form of man. Intellectual cognition. Right? Now, look at the last pack of that chapter. As man's distinction, distant property, which no other creature on earth possess. So you alone think. Intellectual cognition, an exercise of which he does not employ his senses, has been compared apparently not in truth. Why not in truth? Because God does not think the way that you think. God's form of thought is very different than ours, but at least we compare that God thinks and we think. So you might conclude with me that the most important part of the Rambas Murenei Vokhim is this general section on Parashun al-Mikra, interpreting biblical text, and specifically, Salem Elohim as the most important definition of man, therefore that's the most important part. Or you might argue. And you might say that it's not that first chapter. Rather, you look at part 1, chapter 61. Part 161 tells you what the name yud keh vav means. Now so watch that be important to you. Why would you care what the name of God is actually all about? Well, sorry?
2: like a name is like what a
1: thing is. Essence. Good. Biblically speaking, name means essence. So do you care what God's essence is? Well, let say God were a cruel, malicious, angry being. You might conduct your life differently. Well, do you not want to know what God's essence is? So in 161, the Ramah tells us, what is yud kevav ke? Like Somebody tell me, biblically, why should that be very important? Who in fact asks the question, what is this name all about? What is your name? Who asked that question? Good. Moshe Rabbeinu. In what context? the Jews Right, I'm about to go to the Jewish people. So what does God say? Eyeh, asher Eyeh. I am that which I am, will be that which I will be. I am in fact indefinable. So you might argue and tell me that that name that Moshe himself was so concerned about. Name means essence. Yes, I agree with you. And the Rambam concludes that Yud Kev Av Kev means that which is necessarily existent. That which cannot not be. God, contrary to your thoughts, cannot do everything. God cannot self destruct. God cannot not be. God has to be. God is what's known as necessarily existent. We are contingent. We are here, and then we are. Contingent? Not here. We don't have to be here. God has to exist. On the other hand, there are those who understand the name differently. Those who want to understand that it means the hithiel form. Hithiel means causative, the causative form of the verb to be. He who brings something else into existence. So God's the creator. Or some say that it really means the essence of beingness. God is beingness. However we understand the name, you could rightly agree with me and say that that chapter is so important because it tells me the essence of the highest object of our adoration. God is what He is, I have to understand the essence of God, to the extent that I can, and therefore that would be very important. Or, let's say you were a 60s person. In the 60s, when I was in college, the main question that people asked is, how do you know that God exists? That's a very serious question. I don't want to spend my life (laughs) dealing with all kinds of mitzvot and doing all kinds of rituals unless I know that God exists. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I know that God exists. So that might be the most important part of the Rambam's morning of In part two, the opening chapters, the Rambam is going to prove to you that God exists. There are three classical proofs. What's known as, you have to notice the test. Don't worry about the test right now. The cosmological, the teleological, and the ontological proof that God exists. If you want to know more about that, ask Mordechai, because he did that in Hillel. Ontological, teleological, and the cosmological proof. Aristotle believed in the cosmological proof. St. Anselm believed in the ontological proof, and the Romans except the teleological proof, among others. Some will say that there's a moral proof that God exists. Or the Jewish people, the fact that we exist after 3,000 years of an incredibly difficult history, we are the proof that there's Hashgachal, that there's divine promise, that God exists. But however you see that, and the kids in Hillel are very concerned about that particular issue, they want me to prove that God exists to them. And their life will change based on if I succeed or not. So that certainly is a very important part of what we study in Hillel to know whether or not God exists and how to prove that God exists. So that section, that God exists, the first part of, first chapter of part two might be the most important part for you to really know about. The Rambam wants us to walk the pathway from I believe that God exists to I know that God exists. Believing is not knowing. If you know that something is, you're much more inclined to follow properly rather than just believe. Raman wants Adlin. Adlin means absolute knowledge. Not Amanat, not belief, but he wants you to know with absolute certitude that God exists the Ramallah spends a lot of time proving that God exists. Not based on speculation. He wants you to know that God exists. Or, you might argue and say, that's not the most important part of what nebuchim. We spoke about parashantam what that means. Spoke about the name of God. That's the most important. That God exists, proving it. What about that? No, you might say, something is much more important than that. Because I could do away with not knowing what God is, but what is the next most important part? What God wants of us. us. So what, you, what term do we use to think about communication? How God communicates with us. What term is that in Hebrew? <inaudible> Prophecy. <clears throat> so you might say to me that part two, chapters... Chapters 32 to 48... Which discusses nibuah prophecy, how God communicates to man. Now, there are different opinions. Saajagaon, so, for example, would say that God does not actually speak because God has no mouth. Rather, God engaged what's known as Dibur Nivra. God creates a word out of sound waves, and you hear the word that God creates. Rambam says no. Ramadan Bukheen will tell you that it's mental telepathy. God's mind communicates with your mind. Are you ready for that communication? That's key. Because if you're not ready for that communication, then you cannot hear it. God is ongoingly, all the time, speaking. And only will we perfect ourselves, morally, intellectually, will we hear what God wants of us. So you might argue that it's really all about God's will. If we're here to do mitzvot, then you would say, I must understand the dynamics of how God communicates with us. Multiple ways of understanding that term. What's that really all about? And therefore, you might argue and tell me that the most important part of Mone Nebuchim is not really all about Selem Elohim. It's not really about the name of God. It's not really all about proving God. But I want to know, how does God communicate? How could the infinite communicate with the finite? Everybody here, I presume, is finite. Maybe the rabbis not. The rabbis sometimes achieve higher levels. But certainly, we're all finite. How does the infinite, who's beyond time and space, how does bore Olam, he who's created a hundred billion galaxies, which are... Of an extraordinary amount, how does Borea Ulam communicate with one person in one spot? Remember, there's a hundred billion galaxies out there. A galaxy is a constellation of stars. There are a hundred billion trillion stars, a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, hundred billion trillion stars in the entire universe. So God created all of that. Hundred billion galaxies out there, infinite expanding universe. God created all that, and then He's going to pick a person among you and is going to communicate when you're properly prepared for it you're going to absorb the divine message with your mind said understanding that so you might want to say that that is the most important part or you might say <coughs> that's not the most important part rather <coughs> the Rambam in part 13 raises a more fundamental question you might have thought as you were growing up What's the point of God having created all that there is? If we agree that there's 100 billion galaxies, and science says 100 billion galaxies, made of 100 billion trillion stars, and imagine the following. The sun, which is an average star, weighs 1.99 million trillion trillion, trillion tons. 1.99 million trillion trillion stars. That's a star, an average star. So God created that. And he created a million trillion a billion trillion stars the entire universe. All that God created. Your question is question is, why? why? Why did God create the universe? Why did God create the Milky Way galaxy, which we inhabit, one little tiny speck? Why did God create all of that? So the Ramah Morinu Khin, part 3, chapter 13, discusses why God created. Now, Sa'ajah Owen says, he created all for us. For mankind. For us. Because we are very special. We are so special that God created it all for us. Ram says, no. It can't be that God created all of it for the human being. Rather, according to the pasuk from Mishle, Perek Ted Pasuk Dalet, Hakol, Pa'al, Lema'anehu. God created all because it's in the essence of God to create. If you believe in dinosaurs, why did God create dinosaurs 60, 70 million years ago? What's the point? It doesn't serve my needs at all. So the answer is that in the infinite expanse of time, God must create all of infinite possibilities. Dinosaurs, one of the possibilities. Are you a dinosaur? No. So, since God has created all possibilities, and therefore, created whatever there is. Infinite galaxies, expanding universes, ongoing, because that's the nature of God, is to create. So, Ram says that in part three, of Moraine and Good. Why created the... Universe and all that is contained within. It's not only for me, but it's rather because the essence of God to create. Ram because not was not happy, was the I answer to that question. That God created everything for us. Rather, He created lemaanehu. That's the key word in the Pasuka Mishle Mishlei Zain, pasuk dalit for His own sake, meaning because the essence of God is to in fact create or you might not be happy with that chapter and say that part 3, chapter 17 is the most important chapter because that talks about divine providence. Hashkaha. What does divine providence mean? It means, the Ram has his own definition, that every person here is being watched, secure, comfortable, that Borea Olam himself is taking note of your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your desires, your whims. All of that is what Borei Olam is concerned about. That's Hashkaha. And we as a nation, we're a nation, are directed in a certain direction. Because of divine providence. Hashkaha peratit. Individual providence. Hashkaha of our nation. So we're here for 3,000 years through all kinds of difficulties. Because God said we should be here and survive all those difficulties. So you might say to me that you need to understand divine providence, Hashgachah, and that's exactly what the Ramam says is the most important idea here. Or, I assume that the next section is something that has captured everybody's attention over here. We all do mitzvot. In the morning, washing your hands, and praying, But I'm going to ask you, could you defend, on the basis of reason, why you do all those mitzvot? What do we call that field of Jewish thinking? Ta'meh mitzvot. Mitzvot. So the Rambam spends most of the book, actually, the largest section of the book of Murey Nebuchim, on ta'meh mitzvot. Part three, chapter twenty-six to chapter forty-nine. All of that is saying, explaining to you what the rational, logical reason is for the mitzvot that you do. Why is that so important to the Rambam? Some of you do mitzvot without knowing their reason. Are you on a higher level if you do a mitzvah without knowing its reason, or if you know the reason? What do you think? Without Without knowing. Good. So one school of thought will say that if I follow Torah blindly, then on the reason, I'm a higher level. Can anybody argue the reverse, or the opposite? You're
2: saying? Uh, without knowing that you can do the reason we immediately say without knowing because it seems to be higher you can do it without the need to know if you can do it without the need to know and have to know the reason behind it then behind it then you would be better meaning if you're doing it simply because of the reasoning that it would be a lo- on a lower level but if you would achieve the ability to do it without the need to know and yet you also know the rationality of it then you would be on a higher level than not knowing the rationality be having achieved the need to good,
1: matter. but why do you have to why do you assume, and you assume that not knowing the reason puts you at a higher level It seems to. why is blind faith in your conceptional values so important
2: we've seen in the Torah people have been punished for not trusting in God and the like trusting in God where do you see,
1: part, where do you see that part of like?
2: it we say um, um, uh, it really seems me be blank um, the I don't remember somebody okay. else okay. I don't know which was
3: okay I've heard it I know that it's there
1: well, first check all your sources that's first of all Always. The challenge where says it. In other words, the Rambam so will not agree with you. And can you want to add? I, does there have to be a higher level? Like, yeah, agree. Maybe not. Or maybe yes.
2: Is there, is there like anywhere around that we hear levels and like Rambam so?
1: Well, the random does speak the, about people that achieve Perfection. So who's more perfect in the Rambam's terminology? He who just does it blindly or he understands the reason and logic behind it. What do you think the Rambam's going to say? The Rambam epitomizes, yeah? Well,
3: I was going to say, if you're supporting the school of thought where
1: following blindly um, is a higher level than in not knowing, if you want to, I guess... So no. I'm supporting? Oh, I thought you were... They're supporting. Okay. No, I'm not supporting that at all. Yeah. To the contrary a reason behind supporting that,
3: uh, saying knowing, uh, not knowing a reason, like if you have these two schools of thought, not knowing a reason and doing it, or knowing a reason and doing it, which one's a higher level, you could theoretically say that if you're doing, if you're doing it without knowing a reason, you're saying uh, logic is subject to God,
1: whereas if you're doing you have to know the reason in order to do it, then you're saying God is subject to logic. Okay, good. good. So what do you think Rambam says? Uh, the Rambam says that obviously opposite that um, the highest level is knowing. Knowing. Because the... then i be good. The highest level is knowing. Why? Because I become God-like. If God operates only from His wisdom, God operates from His wisdom not from His will, so to speak. He operates from His wisdom. So the more wisdom that I acquire, the more reason I know that if I'm more operating am more God-like. So the Raman wants you to know the reason why you do a mitzvah. He wants you to become God-like. Be as much as you can like God Himself. So God gave you mitzvot out of God's wisdom. There is a logic and a rationale for every single mitzvah. Even you're going to challenge me, say, one second. We know there are those so-called, what are they called? Hokim, where there's no reason. Hopefully, ya'avod, but the random, of course, will say to you that even Hokim have an absolute reason for them as well. God does not arbitrarily bless you, in any which way demand of us that which is not logical or reasonable. So if you studied Muran Bohim. Part 3, chapters 26 through 49, the Ram explains to you a reason for every single law that you have. 613 commandments, 613 reasons. So that section is critically important because it gives me the pathway to become God-like. We guide our lives by virtue of our mitzvot. And if we don't have the reason, the logic, the understanding, why am I doing this? Then you're doing Mitzvah, I'm doing it because my grandfather told me to do it, therefore I'm doing it. So the Rambam spends a lot of time, effort and energy, and it's probably incredibly radical in some of his reasons, but he needed to know the reason that God said, Lord, do not see the golden mother's milk. Any ideas? Why does the Torah say, don't see the goat's of the milk? And the Torah says that, yes? Um, to do recollection, I think
0: it's, I, I know, it's, Raman gets onto this as well, but I know Kisuta specifically speaks of uh, it being, and those words specifically described as a removal of, from idolatrous
1: practices. Good. Exactly. But Kisuta got it for the Ramam. Yes, the Ramam, interestingly enough, good, excellent point, Raman, Shun- Raman Shun- enough says that the ancient Sibian mm-hmm. Sibir- pagans would in fact seed a goat in mother's milk on their pilgrimage. What's the Arabic word for pilgrimage? <laughs> what did Muhammad do when he went from Mecca to Medina? <laughs> a hajj. What's the Hebrew version of that? Hag. Hag. And what does it say, Lord, <laughs> on your pilgrimage, when you go on your hajj or your Hajj, do not see the ghost because the pagans did it. So that typical hawk, really is rooted in Torah's attempt to wean us away from Abodah Idolatry. The Rambam wants us to, in not any which way, become pagan-like, and therefore many mitzvot, in fact, Korbanot in general, but many mitzvot are rooted in Torah's desperate attempt to wean us away from idolatry. Now, of course, many of you will say, well, weaned away. None of us are idolaters. I would tell you that most of the people that I know are probably idolaters. Worshipping a God of their own creation. What they think they've created to be God. For example, take an Islamic suicide bomber. He thinks he's doing God's will. But do you think God wants him to put a bomb by the man and blow up innocent people? Do you think that's what God wants? No. So where does he get that from? His own political ideology. He took his own political ideology, which says... God wants me to blow up innocent people, which we know is false, and he then goes ahead and does that, because that's what God wants me. Allah, I God is great, Allah, who is, God is one. God told me to do this, but God did that. We know God didn't tell me to do that. God, we don't believe in God to so tell you to blow up innocent children, or men, women, or any. So where did he get the idea from? His own mind. So he took his own idea, and made it into an infinite idea of God, and acts upon it. So, is that man an idolater? He created... God, in his own image, in his own political ideology, he created his God. Therefore, I submit to you that idolatry is still a modern possibility. Give me a contemporary, not your lifetime, but but not mine either really, but give me another great formulation of idolatry as a modern possibility. Who raised a human being up to that level?
2: I was gonna say uh, the arguments for homosexuality that, that Okay, oh, Wait,
1: you got another? Come back to where I'm at. We'll go there later. Right now, I got no, to. I was gonna say that
2: people people bring the God argument as people bring the God argument. It's just they they, they take whatever biblical verses they have and say that it applies to that that applies to marriage and, and they basically formulate a picture of God that says something other than he actually says.
1: Okay, that could be good. So that brings to mind out of that the Pope who said. The devil quoted scripture unto his own purpose. The the Pope said, famous English author of the 18th century. God quoted scripture. That's just saying. God quoted the scripture unto his own purpose. So that's correct. Good. But I want a famous example of cold personality. Cold personality. Give me a famous one of that. Who was the most powerful person? Stalin Hitler. Good. Good. So Hitler the Führer is somebody who's considered to be an absolute. Nature so absolute that if he tells me to kill, even though it's against my instincts, even though I was raised and trained, and I'm a doctor, physician, I'll go out. It's extraordinary how that happened. How could Hitler have done this? How could have done this in the sense that he took a physician who swore by the Hippocratic Oath, "I will not harm," and he went out and part of the Eisensgruppen, went out and murdered men, women, children because he said so. It's a sounding phenomenon of psychology or of idolatry where you could take a human being and get him to inflict pain. The most sensitive, compassionate human being will inflict pain because a man of authority said so. Because that man has been idealized. Idolatrized, if you will. Famous psychological experiment. 1954. Milgram. Stanley Milgram. You heard of it. What did he tell us to do? What, did you, what, what would you do? What happened? The arm and shocking person. Yes. Yeah, so, what was the case? A man in a white cloth seems to be a figure of authority. Right. Brings you into a room. Man with a side strap to a electrode. Right. Shocking person. Every time he has the wrong answer.
0: Right, and he would do it even and though he saw the person wasn't
1: paying. Right, and the people <coughs> in Newport, Rhode Island, had the same <coughs> had the same rate as Yale University students. So your mind does not tell you to do something right or wrong. It's not about how smart you are. You go to Yale, you're still going to put a lethal shot 72% of the time as a man off the streets. Because a man of authority tells you to do so. Because you idealize or idolatrize that man in a white coat this she says do it, I said so do it, I said so do it, I said so and that actually works. It actually works. An astounding experiment that was meant to explain how could good people do such evil. So, idolatry is a modern possibility. And therefore Gibraltar the says to us says to us Torah Torah only came la accord to uproot idolatry not only 3,000 years ago not only 2,000 years ago but today as well Torah has an ongoing battle of trying to uproot because there are many people that will quote Torah and creating their own political ideology or their own whatever other ideology it is we have to beware of that so the Ramban therefore says don't believe in blind faith, but rather the Ramadan wants to understand the reason for the mitzvot, and as he put it before, that even something, as we all think, as a hope, as Lord, do not see those had a purpose to uproot idolatry. We have to defend and make sure that idolatry never becomes a modern possibility. So therefore the Ramadan says, you must... Not follow cult personalities. you must challenge authority and make sure you understand what God wants of you, because God's rooted in reason, or oh, it's rooted it in reason, and therefore what you do do for the right reason. What's the reason of all the mitzvot? In general, tikkun tikuna ha to create a society where you could function physically well as well as intellectually well. So therefore, you might come to the conclusion that actually the most important part of one of the is ta'amea mitzvot. Ram spends the most time doing it, all those chapters, 323, 349, where he explains all of the mitzvot, rationally, logically, historically, sociologically, psychologically, all of those elements play a role in explaining the mitzvot. So, you might argue very well that that's the most important part of Murey Ndvokhin. Ta'ameh HaMitzvot. mitzvot, thematically presented. Good. Or you might say <coughs> that really... <coughs> The most important part of Moren Ibukhim is the final chapter because the Rambam puts the most significant idea, concept, at the very epitome, the very end of the book itself. Now, here, the Rambam teaches us that if you look at the last pages, the Rambam says here Chokhmah, chapter 54. is used <coughs> in four different things. <coughs> and you read the opening line that Hokuma is very important to the Rambam, and you go through this very important chapter. It says that there are four kinds of perfection. You as a person, you want to achieve perfection. You want to achieve perfection, and there are four kinds of perfection. So I'll ask you the question. Is the first kind of perfection, the lowest, the most important? Possession of money, garments, furniture, service, and land. That's the first context. People w- want to achieve that. We all want to become Bill Gates. You want to achieve what everything money can buy. That's a perfection. Now you can imagine, why does Bill Gates still go to work? He has everything he wants. 42 billion dollars, quite literally. So why does he going to work? Because he wants to achieve perfection in making money. So that might be one perfection. The second perfection, you look at the next page, page 395, is the kuna haguf, your physical body. Physical body, you want to perfect your physical, you want to work out, you want to pump iron, Jack Delane died today, 96 years old, still doing exercise. I run four miles a night, by the way, so I do exercise too. Every night four miles. Only for health reasons, not physical, just for health reasons. But, so to go na goof, that's the next one. Third question is moral perfection. You want to be morally correct morally correct. You may be facing with a lot of moral dilemmas. You want to do what's right. I have this question. Only in he Israel. Mordechai calls me up two days ago and says to me, let's learn. I said, okay, I'm on my way. There's an old lady who was with a walker. And I said, oh, do you need help up the stairs? She says, yes. Will I help her up the stairs? She says, do you have a car? No, I don't have a no car. So I have to go to the drugstore, she says. And she, she can't walk very well. I can see that. So I said, no, but you need help to go to the She says, yes. So now the dilemma. dilemma. should I go and learn with Mordechai? Or should I help this lady to the drugstore, which is about two blocks away, which at her rate would take me about two hours to get there. So what should I do in that situation? So the first that comes to mind is, yes? Yourself, you get drugs. Yes! Smart boy. Yeah. I said, excuse me, have a five one there to be three minutes to come back, and it be very she says, I can't. I said, why not? Just give me your push, i get you person. I have she's about 92 years old, this woman. So I said, she said, I have to get something that um, women get. I didn't ask any more questions. So I said, okay, I'll walk you. So I left him in the lurch. And I walked her. And then when God instruction to she says, I need some hair coloring. But she didn't want me to get the hair coloring, right whatever was. So, and it literally took me two hours. Literally two hours. From quarter to one to, to about three o'clock. We took, we walked every step. Hashem sent you. Hashem sent me. It's that that sent me. Hashem sent you. Thank you. What okay, can I do for you? All that. So it's a dilemma. What should I do? Learning? Or help this old woman get to the pharmacy for a prescription and for hair coloring? So I was perplexed. I didn't know, and there are many more serious moral dilemmas that you could think about that happens in life. What to choose? Whether the conflict of moral values. So you want to be morally correct, morally straight, morally right? You need to perfect your moral decision-making power. We all know about IQ, intellectual, how smart you are. We've now heard about EQ, emotional quotient. How? emotionally profound you are as a human being. How emotionally profound you are. But the new category, the last category one might say is your MQ, your moral question. Do you know what's right to do in a difficult situation? And there are multiple examples of that every single day. Physicians face them all the time. What happens when you have a 95-year-old person on a respirator, you only have one respirator, and he's going to only live three more minutes, two more minutes, one more minute alone comes into the emergency room a young person who needs a respirator desperately and but very healthy but needs just this respirator do I pull the plug take the respirator off the man who is going to die anyway in one minute and put this woman on who is going to live we think another 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years do I do that or not? that's yeah. a moral dilemma you're saying yes yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> no <coughs> no Halacha would say no to that because that man's one minute thirty seconds is infinitely precious so I can't do that that's a moral dilemma that a physician has to do another moral dilemma I got this question we have somebody who has Lou Gehrig's disease is about a thirty-eight forty-year-old person he wants to die he's been in the state for six months cannot move a limb as you know in Lou Gehrig's disease can only blink his eyes so he wants to die and now he has caught He's in a hospital bed, lying down, pneumonia. Doctor says to me, to the rabbi, that we could give him antibiotics, he'll live six more months, then he will die. Or we could not give him antibiotics, he'll die in three days. What should I do? Moral dilemma. Man's life is in the balance. And he stated that he wants to die. So that's a moral dilemma. There are multiple moral dilemmas that one faces in life. <laughs> Halacha, mitzuyad, it's all there. So one wants to perfect one's moral sensitivity, one's moral understanding, and that's the third kind of perfection. The map Finally, the fourth kind is perfection of the intellect of the mind, and that's how you understand God properly. You want to achieve what's known as daat Elokim, knowledge of God. Perfect your mind. The bond between you and Akadosh Baruch Hu is your mind as Rambam says at the beginning of Murei Nebuchin. So you want to perfect that. That's how to achieve closeness to God, by perfecting your mind, by understanding the mitzvot, understanding the natural order. You study chemistry, physics, and biology, and psychology, you understand all that, you become closer to God by virtue of using your mind. That's the fourth intellectual, the fourth perfectionist intellectual. So all of this. Now the Rambam quotes, which might be the most important verse, and I'm almost finished, give me five more minutes, we quoting me out perectly at pasuk kaf bet. There, this pasuk tells us, "Do not be overjoyed, do not be overjoyed. Don't glory in your possessions and your ocean, your wealth, and don't glory in your physical attributes. Ki b'zotinam metalel, haskel come to know me, haskel doati, come to understand what I'm all about." I'm God. I am God who does kindness and mercy and compassion. That's what I want from you. So the Rambam over here seems to end more in the on this notion that you achieve intellectual perfection and what do you do with that intellectual perfection? You go out and help the old lady across the street. You engage in acts of kindness and compassion. Because just wisdom per se is not what it's all about. And it's not about acquiring great wealth. And don't achieve great physical attributes. That's not what it's all about. Come to relate to me, to know me. I am God who loves kindness and mercy and compassion. So do your acts of kindness out of an understanding that that's what God wants. So, do you give blood to somebody who needs it because it's a mitzvah, which God wants you to do, it, or because it's humanitarian? In other words we had this question, Rob Lichtenstein was asked this question when at you we all had this, we gave blood, you know, two, two, three times a year, so we all had the question, Is Rob Lichtenstein, are you giving blood, he gave blood, are you giving blood because it's humanitarianly proper, or because God said so? So we won't discuss that right now, but it's one of those interesting questions that you could ponder: Why should you give blood? Because it's a God said so, or because it's humanitarily right? Okay, so all of that is more the And now we're going to come to the answer to our question. What's the most important part of this book? We spoke about Parashayut mikra Sayyidim Alokim, point one. Shem Hashem, 161, what the name of God means. Or Proving God's Existence, number three. Or the idea of Nibwa, number four. Or the purpose of creation, number five. Or Hashkach HaPirati, number six. Or Ta'amam Mitzvot, number seven. Or Tachlit Adam, the purpose of mankind. What's the most important part of Boreen Ibuchim? So now comes the Sherlock Holmes part of this discussion. With your permission, I'll analogize. Let's say a murder is committed. A murder is committed, and you want to solve the murder because you care about justice, and therefore what are you going to do? You're going to call history's most famous detective.
0: Sherlock
1: Sherlock Holmes. What's he first going to do? First, he's going to observe very carefully and gather all of his data and all of his information. Then what's he going to do? He's going to create a hypothesis or a framework. A framework. Now, in that framework, what has to fit together? What has to all make sense? All of the evidence. Very good. All of the data. So, let's say the murderer's footstep was a size 7 shoe. And you thought the butler did it. He had a size 5 shoe. Then you're, you're wrong about the butler having done it. So all of your 10, 15, 20 pieces of data have to all fit together. And when all fits together, and everything makes sense, then what happens? You know who committed the murder. That, in philosophical terms, is known as the coherent theory of truth. Because how do you know what's true? How do you know what's really right? How do you know what's really the most important thing to do? You have to create from what's known as, in the field of philosophy, epistemology, theories of knowledge. How do you know what you know is true? What's truth? There are multiple theories of truth. So the one that's most accessible, that's most known, it's not perfect, is known as the coherent theory of truth, which is what I will call the Sherlock Holmes theory of truth, which is all your data is gathered together, you create a hypothesis, and if all the data coheres, it all integrates, there's no contradictions, there's no data stuff out, then that theory is correct. That's known as the coherent theory of truth. So in order to answer this question as to the most important part of Bone you have to take all that you know at the Ramba, how he lived his life, what his values were, what he specifically says regarding certain issues. In other words, if he uses a phrase and says to that use the word Da'beni as he does sometimes. What does that mean? It tells you all of a sudden, in the middle of the book, it tells you, know my son. That means, focus on this area. So look at the specific terminology of the Rambam in Morin So, the structure of the book, the words that use the book, the Rambam's life, all that is part of the data. Put it into a framework. And when you get all the data, all coherent all integrated then you know the answer to that question what was the most important value for the Rambam when you get all the data of Ram's life how he lived his life how he phrased his issues in Morin Nebuchadnezzar because it's not all the same he puts some in different problems this is how you have to know this is wisdom this is not put it all together in the framework then you know the answer to the question so we've covered so far that sections of de Debochim. You have some ideas, the ideas that are in Moren Debochim. The most significant Jewish ideas have been commented upon by the Rambam. You got all that. Number two, you understand how Sherlock Holmes played a role in all this, giving us the tool by which to figure out what's the most important idea in Moren Debochim, the theory of truth. Now, the fool. Last part is the fool. Who is the fool? The fool plays a role in history of philosophy. In... The area of proving God 's existence, I mentioned before that this is a very important endeavor to know that God exists. People for thousands of years have been trying to prove that God exists. through teleological proof, which is known as the watchmaker's proof, which means that if you find a very complex watch in the middle of the desert, if there's a watch there must be a a watchmaker. Right. Once you have a watchmaker, and then if you look at the universe, which is much more complicated than a watch, then, obviously, there must be a creator to the universe. It's so complex it all seems to cohere. It all seems to work together. There must be a creator. That's called the teleological. In the 12th century, there was a person known as Saint Anselm, and says, I'm going to create a new proof for God's existence, known as the ontological proof, which we're not going to go into right now. Uh, But... He makes the point, says that my proof is so simple, it's so easy that a fool understands. What's this very simple proof that's so easy? Says God's the most perfect being, is he not? And God must have, therefore, all the perfections, must he not? So therefore, isn't existence a perfection? Isn't I mean, obviously, if I, have, in existence, am I making a million dollars? Is that on a higher level? Is that better than you having just in your dreams? Is it better to have a real million dollars or a dream million dollars? What do you think?
2: Real.
1: real. So therefore existence, reality, is a perfection. So therefore God has all the perfection. He also has the perfection of? Of? Existence. Therefore God exists. That's, so the fool says that's silly. So so St. F. says, God by definition has all the perfections, and therefore he has a profession of existence as well therefore God exists so the fool replies Gainalo is another person and he's known as the fool and he says, look, St. Ansem, I don't get it I'm dreaming of a perfect island the island is fantastic, it's beautiful sunlight it's Hawaii and it's beautiful water and it's, and it's all kinds of great fruit and my dream doesn't really exist I'm dreaming of a perfect island not that I dream of it and it's all the perfection doesn't mean that it really exists, does it? The fool answers. Then Saint Anselm replied to the fool. And he said, You're not getting it, fool. You know you're not getting it? Because you're talking about an island. I'm talking about God. And my terminology about God differs from all other terminology. So if God has no perfections, that means he really has perfections unlike your island. To this very day, people are arguing over the fool's reply. At a professor at YU, Rabbi Gelman, actually, who's here now, 'er been here many years, he got his PhD thesis on writing about the ontological argument for God's existence. He wrote his whole PhD thesis on that that theory, that you could prove rationally, logically, ontologically, the word ontology means being, or existence. So you could prove God through that, that form of argument. That's one level of the fool. However, I would say that the fool is really he who does not engage in learning and studying and knowing, and using his mind, in whatever field that you choose, wherever it is, using your mind, because man's intelligence is God's greatest glory. So use your mind, see it as the connecting bond between you and Boréal Olam, and thank you all for coming. Yeah, questions, please. You have to have at least one question. Yes, please. But, I mean, I, I thought the bigger problem
0: for that whole uh, proof for God's existence is that you start with the assumption that it's about you prove that.
1: Yes, it says, imagine, correct, assume that God exists. So you have to think of God in, you think of God physically? No. Think of God in the most perfect being. Is that not part of your assumption? Assume it. Correct. So God has all the perfections, including the perfection of. So therefore, he exists. You just so I, did it. So if very I good assume, job.
0: If I assume God exists. He exists.
1: No, you assume a certain idea about God. You assume that because I can assume a God that does not that's not perfect. He says, "Assume that God exists." Now remember that the idea of proving God's has a very long distinguished history in, in philosophy. Take heart, prove that God exists. So did Aristotle, so did Plato. The greatest minds all believed that God exists. Either teleologically, which means everything shows a means to an end. Or cosmologically, somebody had to get the ball rolling. Or ontologically, St. Anselm. They all believed in some form for one reason or other, that God exists. So this is St. Anselm's no Hidush. Jews never accepted this argument for your reason. It didn't make sense to them. Intuitively, we rejected. So Jews mainly had the cosmological argument, as around us, or the teleological argument. Rabbi Akiva has that in the Midrash. Teleological argument. So yes, we. But we all tried to prove that God exists. So yes, if you don't like, if you're on the fool side, you're in good company. Mine too. Good. Yeah. Isn't, like,
0: isn't there a danger of turning the intellect into metal?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So one has to. <clears throat> She wants us to be aware of that. And the one who engages with his intellect is smart enough to know that it's not going to be an idol. In other words, if you engage your mind, as the Ramam did, using it to the fullest possible development, then you will not... That's a danger, but you will be so smart that you will not fall to that trap. That's the key. If you engage ongoingly, knowingly, understandingly, you'll always understand that we are not God. Hopefully. Yes? Okay. Yes?
0: All right. So, in the form God specifically says that we cannot truly, fully
1: comprehend Him. I'm sorry, but, it, this, you said it again? I
0: didn't do it. In the God says specific, that we cannot truly comprehend Him. I mean, he says that we cannot, see, we cannot high. see His face. Right. Um, so then doesn't any attempt to grasp it sort of actually does lead into a, into a misunderstanding? Any attempt to grasp to grasp God, like trying to explain Bethlehem and says there's a misunderstanding, so we try to elucidate it but any elucidation also won't hit the reality we cannot actually
1: understand the reality so doesn't that just lead to a different misunderstanding? It could! It, yes it has it could it has but you have no choice but to attempt to understand God knowing full well that you will fall short you will fall short Not that you will fall short that answers this question knowing that you're going to, because it says Lord I don't have a high you're going to fall short of knowing it. it does not mean that I should not engage in the endeavor so yes there are pitfalls along the way but one who ongoingly constantly attempts to strive for knowledge of God that Elohim will fall short, but it'll be closer than if he doesn't try at all. So yes, the danger, you're both asking the same question, but the constant, ongoing engagement, as the Rambam says, let me just read one paragraph to you from 351. When you are alone by yourself, when you are awake on your bed, be careful to meditate in such precious moments on nothing but the intellectual worship of God, namely to approach God and to minister before Him in the true manner that I've described to you, not in hollow emotions. Using your mind to understand, studying science, studying astrophysics, studying biology of the body, studying psychology of the mind, all of that will give you an understanding of what Borei Olam is all about. This I consider the highest perfection, wise men can attain it by the above training. So it's not simple, it's not easy, but, as the Rambam ends, that the goal is to understand and to know God. And then by virtue of achieving that goal, what do you do? Hesed Mishpat By knowing God, I engage in the moral behaviour of doing what's right. Good? Good. Question?
2: Yes? Um in, in saying that that the Rambam's point is is to emphasize the say the possibility of intellectualizing the way that you see God and the way that you understand God or um, complies with with, uh, if you take all the other ideas in the book, such like, um, Tom and vote, if you look at Tom and vote not as Rambam is giving somebody a guide to worshipping with rationalization, rather saying, it's possible, and I've done it, and this is my rationalization, and that, and that it's not something to be pressed upon. seems to, and, and the fact that he brings his proofs and his own intellectualization to things, that we typically would say, you shouldn't, because it's not faith, See, would actually indicate would it, it would it would comply with saying that the main idea of the book isn't bringing up the, these points to the masses. It's not telling people within the masses how to rationalize these vote and why before told makes sense. And don't worry, you can still do them because they're not completely um, they're not they're completely irrational. It's saying it's possible. The intellectualization of religion isn't something that should be completely beyond us. But
1: the problem saying that it's not beyond us.
2: And he's saying he's not saying other things to say, to say, look at just look at these things. I mean, if you look at the book in terms of in terms of individual topics, it could seem like the Rambam was just saying, look at these ideas I'm laying out them out on the table before you. But right. right. if you look at it in terms of the last chapter and work your way backwards, it could actually indicate that the Rambam is just saying, This is what I've done. I and mean, these are the things that I've taken over to intellectual life religion, and it's possible. Right. More to not lay everything out on the table and say this is law and this is correct it would be dangerous for him to say that all of his time mayors vote are, are, are
3: completely correct. correct
2: are, I agree. Represent. And so, therefore, right. it would make sense for him to say that the, the point of the book isn't to isn't to just lay things ideas out on the table for people, rather to say it's possible to intellectualize religion and this is
1: what I can do. He does say that. But in Tameh Mitzvah specifically will tell you this is what I've come up with as you're pointing out. And there might be other reasons that I have not come up with. So he gives you in that particular section of the book, more latitude to operate. So think of something more that what's the reason for this particular Mitzvah. Pointing out as well that in in Mishneh Torah in the Rambam, he does add Tameh Mitzvah in many areas because he believes that worship or Mitzvah without logic and reason is empty. He wants you to know the reason. So in Mishneh Torah, Nechot Timurah, for example, or at the end of Koronah Kabashu, all of that, he will give you a reason for the mitzvah itself. Right? So yes, but you could expand upon this reason. So he's not going to this, this reason necessarily the reason, but it's you should pursue the endeavor of understanding why you do, because you connect to God through logic and through reason, and you will ultimately achieve God to by knowing the reason behind the mitzvah. He gives you one stab at it in that particular section of Moray But there are other possibilities as well. So you're right. I think you're right. There are possibilities of that. You have a question? Uh, um, if the was is saying that the Torah is perfect and it's
3: God-given, so we learn that we are closer to God and that's how we gain perfection.
1: Through use of reason.
3: But
1: what about halakha that's not God-given? Why are we learning that we are to God? Which halakha do you need
3: to, the you mean to, to, to you? besides the actual
1: God-given text? Okay, so he, the Rambam would say, as he does in his Hatamala Mishnah, he'll give you the entire structure of law. So you, by virtue of understanding rationally the Torah itself, good, and then the rabbis then had to, let's say, um, correct things that weren't going, let say, prosbol. Prozbol is a rabbinic initiative, or Tephilah, Tephilah is the of course to the Rambam. So if you praise the writer, not called the Ramban, but the Ramban. But let's say something like Berachot. It's, it's rabbinic. So the Ramban would say that by virtue of following the rabbis, ultimately going to achieve that which Torah wants. The rabbis who have embodied all of this divine wisdom are going to make the tikkunim that are necessary because society changes. As Prozbol, for example, is. Prozbol is when people refuse to loan money because they want not getting back to the Shemitah, right? You know what Prozbole is? Yeah. I'm sorry? No. ball is something that the rabbis initiated because yes. I'm not going to yes. loan you money because at the seventh year you don't have to pay me back. Right? So the rabbi said, no, no, no. We're going to create a situation. We're going to subvent, so to speak. Torah says, forgive the debt. Forgive the debt. And Torah wants you to forgive the debt. I don't want to forgive my debt. I earn my money. I own it to you. I want it back. So I'm not loaning you any money. Too bad. So the rabbi said, No. You will pay your debt back to the Bedin, the Bedin will pay back to me. So I will loan you money, because this is going to happen. You following so far? So that is going to help the poor man. It's going to perfect that system, because human beings will not always follow the dictates. If beings follow the dictates of the Torah, then that's perfect. But if they don't, rabbis have to make takanot and gezerot, in order to make society flow more smoothly so therefore by following the rabbis you are going to be following their imbibed divine wisdom they have it all they understand the concepts and they because they believe let's say in chesed so they believe in chesed the rabbis do and I don't I'm not going to loan you money if I'm not going to get it back in the 7th year so the rabbis will create a legal institution by virtue of which chesed will have that's the most important value following so far? yeah we have, on the same page?
3: Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Um, if one we were to like follow Rambam, so um, kind of have like an intellectual view of, of Torah and such, um, how how do you like avoid uh, you know like over intellectualizing of your life? Meaning, like, that how would you how would you be able to you know love God? And I, I know that Rambam says that love love of God is a connection through the intellect through right. the intellect. Right.
1: And it's, it's, Mr. says that. Right. The
3: the thing is is that like if you do that, if if, if you know the main point of religion is you know contemplation, self-contemplation,
1: and the contemplation of God, right? And then using that knowledge to do hesed, Arits. That's the last line. me out 922. Right. right. But so but, so then how do you, how do you come to
3: love the if you're
1: only
3: viewing them? And if you're only doing the rapidly, right? So saying like, I am doing this mitzvah because, you know, i can find some sort of you know tikkun alam, some sort of some sort of tikkun for it as, as Ramon would say, then how do you have any sort of familiarity, any sort of relationship with the mitzvah, and have to go who, if the only way you're viewing it is as a way to improve your life? Kind of like if like if you take the letter, isn't aren't you kind of reducing the Torah to like a self help book? Like how do you lead the best life based off, you know, uh, you know rationality, like meaning like that um, like like the most effort, like uh, how much effort I can put in now to get the most reward later, right? Which is pretty much the So how do you avoid that?
1: Okay, so I think when you get married you're not yet I assume God willing, when you get married, you will do a lot of things for your spouse that may even seem irrational to you, you may not understand it, or you may, but you do it out of love. So, for example, when your wife's pregnant at 8 months, and she wants ice cream at 3 o'clock in the morning, because she has this need, you're going to go out and get ice cream at that point in time. You're going to do that, right? Now, you do it with love. It's, it, but you're doing it with love. Because when, once you love God, all that you're going to do in the mitzvot, are going to be an expression of love for so there's though one engaged intellectually you ultimately come to a love of God which will translate into doing the mitzvot not because they're non-rational and not because I don't understand them but when I understand the mitzvot and I love God I'm going to do it so for example you come to a position let's say where you love your field do you hear the expression I love my field when I was doing my PhD work, I spent more time with the Rambam and his son than I did with my wife and my daughter. And I loved doing it. 18 hours a day, you're studying, you're learning, you come to love that which is intellectual. So, the point beyond intellectual is loving your field. You spend hours and time and effort, and energy, and every detail of Rabbi Abraham's life, and the Rambam was important to me. I loved my field, I loved learning, so to speak. So, why do people love learning? spending 18 hours in the Beit Midrash? Because it's when you feel the whole system together it makes sense it's logical it's it's Hashem so loving God translates into doing the mitzvot with greater intensity and greater love. So the connecting link as Choy der Torah chapter 2 halakhah 1 and 2 says that eventually you will you will study God's creation and by studying God's creation what will you come to? A love of God. Say how glorious it is. Lokimi says in that chapter, my, my soul thirsts for you, I love God, and I want to know more and more about God, intellectually. So there's a connecting link between the mind and the heart. Really one cannot separate the two. So eventually the Rambam wants you to love God through knowing of God. And that translates into doing the mitzvot. So you will come to do mitzvot with a great deal of love by virtue of your knowledge of God. Yes?
0: And I think it's either to talk about um or Mishnah, he lists his chain in the Sahara, um, saying that none of my ideas are are none of my ideas are for my own more or less or that it has basis in as any comes from Moshe, Because you can trace it back. Yeah. This holds true to his like philosophy is his like the entire mind of the plane. Is it is it all coming from saying Does he think that this is how Judaism was envisioned before him, and that that is the true form coming from Har or that it's of his own creation? And he he he, dis, he discovered the truth, or he or he just like us no, many everyone no, already knew but never spoke about?
1: Yeah, the Rambam will tell you <coughs> the latter. In that his whole purpose, Moadim Khim, is to reveal the secrets. Torah. Those two issues. So this entire book of Mureen Rebuchim wants to reveal the secrets which really you're not supposed to do. His introduction to Mureen he tells you, I'm only doing this because I have to do this. Really, I cannot write down really the truth of Judaism. Not allowed to. right? For whatever reason it may be. You can't write down the secrets about what Torah is all about. Can't write it down, but I'm going to write it down. Who preceded me in writing down things that should not be written down? The There's a need to write down this to safeguard the Jewish people, right? Wait, wait. So therefore, the Rambam will tell you, lies in its' Amitzvot. These are mine, and you can have your own. But in other areas of Mordechai the this is what he believes. This is what Moshe was all about. Moshe knew all this, and put it into a secret form for whatever reason and now I'm going to have to reveal the secrets of Judaism to save the Jewish people. Based on the in to which means there's a time when are have to violate the law to safeguard the law. Or Eliyahu and the Rambam, all have violated the law to save the law. It was a time of intellectual darkness. People are confused. People are perplexed. They don't really understand it. I must now reveal that which Jewish philosophy had known for thousands of years. So that.
0: So if anyone tries to argue with the Raman's philosophy, can on just
1: say... Oh, everybody say, argued with it at the end of the day.
0: I mean, everyone argues with it. I'm saying, they can not just turn around and say, listen, if, I'm saying on, on the sections that Raman claims don't come from the zone, it comes from the tradition, can they just say, listen, you don't have tradition, He has tradition, it comes from... It. He's getting from all the
1: cherubim, no, now. but it's based on reason. It's like, it's Salem Elohim cannot be what they think it is. based on reason. So, is it reason or tradition? The Rama would say it's, it's, it's reason over here, which is traditionally Jewish tradition. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu was a super intellect. If you look at his, his Yud Gimli Karim, the seventh week, talks about Moshe Rabbeinu. He was above and beyond using his mind. It's all about Moshe Rabbeinu's mind. Understanding what God wants. And taking what God wants, and putting it into a concrete form. Mm-hmm. So it's what God wants. It's all about the mind. So if But, that, you... but the idea of, of
0: reason being the soul, of the intellect, and the mind being like the highest level yeah. of existence, that, that that's from the
1: tradition that's Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because God does everything through His wisdom. God does not command you through... Quote his will arbitrarily. It's not arbitrary. It's all about divine wisdom. God's wisdom is what dictates Torah, what you want to connect to God through. Moshe It was all that, nine It's all about wisdom. So you can argue on the plane of reason and logic. So, how, the, so how does someone argue with Ramah on these areas? Every area would be different. In other words, if you, whatever area that we're talking about, Let's say Kreskas, a great philosopher who came after the Rambam, would say it's not all about the mind, it's about love, as you want to say. As the guy's getting married soon. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about love. What if the love it, because the Rambam says if you don't have the divine mind, if you don't have mind, you're not getting any more talented. You're not going to Lamaba. You need to have the mind to acquire Lamaba. which should upset you. Because not everybody has this brilliant mind of the Rambams. It's an extraordinary mind the Rambam had. They're one of the greatest minds in history. If you think of Mishneh Torah, we took 100,000 facts of halacha and put it in conceptual, classified properly, logical order, just standing all without Bill Gates. It's amazing what he did, taking all Talmud and classified, conceptualized, organized Mishneh Torah. Nobody did it before him, nobody did it after him. Mishneh Torah, he tells you this is a great work. He had an incredible mind, analytical as well as legal. Okay. and philosophical so, so he says it's really the Ulam is about the mind but says no it's about doing the mitzvot properly loving God not the mind
0: he,
1: he, did, he wouldn't say that he would say based on my philosophy of religion which is based on this logic and analytical approach to things it's, that's what it is so Kreska would argue with him many again the in controversy because the Ram said what he said his books were burnt 1232, they burnt the Rambam's books Four times they had, as you know They had these issues with the Rambam You don't believe this, you don't believe this They killed the Rambam He was lambasted because of things that he said People were not happy with the Rambam's formulation Of what Judaism is all about So, if, like
0: in today's day and age, right? Um, if someone was to come up with a new, new philosophical approach to Judaism
1: And they do all the time they
0: do All the time, But none but of them have the same plan as the Rambam though. Have the same the claim as the Rambam <coughs> of it being traditional.
1: No. No. Let's say, for example, you want to teach somebody about prayer. So there's two elements. You give Eliza Berkowitz's article on prayer, which is a logical, philosophically rigorous, rigorous, defined prayer. What's it all about? But that may not be enough. So I would take my friend who's getting married soon as approach, and I'd say, I want to teach you love of prayer. So what would I give them then? Heschel's Man's Quest for God. Heschel's poetic. Berkowitz is analytical. so But they both are coming from the same school, uh, as from the same tradition, let's call it. So the Rambam was exclusive in saying that this is the right way and there's no other way. But nowadays nobody would say that. You have many Jewish philosophers who would approach all these questions. Rambam, this is all the most important the, all the most important ideas here. Let's say, how do Iyov? Right? All those Rambam takes, talks about in this book. Yitzchak, how does God command? All this. So the, the Rambam had his answer to this question. Okay, am going what's yor all about? But if you were to analyze the book of Yob, you would use the Rambam as a starting point. People started writing the PhD theses on the Rambam, all about the Rambam. What's the idea of providence and how people argued with it? So the Rambam may claim it for tradition, that's what Moshe was all about, but it was not accepted as such. At the end, they burnt the Rambam's books. Yeah, good. Anybody else? It's getting late. This side of the room, good. Rabbi, thank you all. Have a great day. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Anna, for your shout out to me. Anybody else? It's getting late.